Let's all take our Bibles this morning. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. We will read the first 23 verses. Now hear God's word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Joram, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let us pray as we come to God's word together this morning. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word, and we recognize this morning as it is read and as we come to it to contemplate it and study it and to proclaim it, that it is your word, that even this genealogy full of these names that are sometimes hard to pronounce, 
Father, this is your word. This is breathed out by God. This is inspired of the Holy Spirit. This is inerrant and infallible. This is profitable for us, even as Paul would proclaim. And so, Father, would you help us to understand this morning? Would you open our eyes and illuminate our hearts? And by your Holy Spirit, give us grace to continue to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight as we come to your holy word, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ian and I were having lunch the other day, and he said, what are you going to preach on the day after Christmas? And I said, I think I'm going to preach the genealogy in Matthew, and he laughed, because who does that, right? Um, Oftentimes we just kind of, let's just get through that and get to the good stuff about the birth of Jesus. But there are, there are some nuggets of gold that I want for us to dig down on this morning as we celebrate Christmas together as a church. In this text, in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is in fact emphasizing some critically important aspects about who Jesus is and What I want us to focus on here today is is what this genealogy does for us is to explain to us how this one person alone, how Jesus alone was the one and only person ever to be born into this world and whoever could have been born into this world who could bring fulfillment to all of the eternal promises and purposes of God to redeem for himself a people. And Matthew shows us that Jesus does that. He shows us, first of all, by the meaning of Jesus' name, right? In verse 21 here, the angel tells Joseph, you're going to name him Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. And the name Jesus comes from a Hebrew name that means Savior, to save. And then, of course, all of this is said to be in fulfillment to that great prophecy of the virgin birth in Isaiah chapter 7 where God says that in the birth of this child will come the one whose name is Emmanuel, which means literally God with us. Not just God giving something to us, but God giving Himself as a human child to be with us and to save us from our sins. And so Matthew's recording all of this and showing how the the names of Jesus, Jesus and Emmanuel, um, speak to... His ability and unique ability to bring to fulfillment all of the promises of God. But, but the uniqueness of Jesus isn't limited just to His name, to what He's called. And what Matthew is showing us here is that it was this specific person named Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, the son of Joseph, the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David, the one who came from this very specific genealogy and lineage. It's this one particular specific person who is the bedrock of our hope and of our comfort and of our everlasting salvation in life. And so today as we've come, having celebrated Christmas and continuing to do that, as we come to lift high the name of Jesus and to exalt Him and to sing praises to Him, I want for us to consider together uh, how wonderful the sovereign purposes of God are. How wonderful God's orchestration of all of history was and has been and is 
as he has brought about the birth of his son in this unique way. So, like I said, sometimes we're very tempted when we come across a genealogy in Scripture just to read it as fast as we can and kind of skim over it because it's tough to see any real significance in all these names. It's just a historical record, right, of how he was born. And, and it doesn't really matter that much. It's tempting to think. But this morning, I want us to, to look more in depth at it. And we can't, of course, take the time to look at every single name in this genealogy. But I want to lift out some highlights, a few specific highlights that show us how absolutely unique this particular lineage is and how it all means that, that of the hundreds of millions and billions of people who have been born on this earth and into this world, it could only have been this one, only Him, who would fulfill all of the promises and purposes of God. And so, we say amen, right, when, when Stan says, hear the word of the Lord. We know this genealogy is not excluded, right? This isn't just a sort of a, a preface to the word of God that was written by somebody else. This is the word of God. And because it's God's word, and because there are embedded into this genealogy some wonderful truths about our Lord, we're going to take the opportunity to dig down and try to extract some of that gold this morning. Now, of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two of them, only Matthew and Luke, include a genealogy like this of Jesus. And here's the thing, if you've done any study of the Gospels and compared them, if you read Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy side by side, at at certain points and at first glance, they look different. Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham in the Old Testament, and then goes all the way down through David, and then down through the exile in Babylon, and all the way down to Joseph, to the birth of Jesus. And the first and most obvious difference with Luke's genealogy is it goes the other way, right? It, it, it starts at the bottom, and then works its way backwards through the Old Testament, all the way up to Abraham, and then ultimately all the way up to Adam. And that difference, the the difference of order, isn't a big deal, obviously. The bigger deal is that when you read Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy side by side, you start to notice that there there are different names in them. And so let me just say at the outset, don't, don't worry, don't be alarmed, your Bible doesn't contradict itself. It's not a big deal because the simple fact is that neither of these are, are comprehensive, obviously, lists of ancestors, right? If we had every single name of all of Jesus' ancestors here, it would be a much longer list. These are, these are selective lists of particular names that both Matthew and Luke want to pull out of Jesus' lineage in order to show specific things about his heritage, and Matthew and Luke are showing different things that are both true about Jesus. What Matthew's doing is chronicling the royal lineage of Jesus Christ, while Luke is just chronicling a a, a familial lineage. So see the difference? In other words, the names here in Matthew's genealogy have to do with an ascendancy of kings, heirs to the throne, some of which aren't the oldest sons, some of which aren't even biological sons at all, because Matthew's great concern in his genealogy is not just to trace the biology, it's to demonstrate that Jesus is the legitimate heir 
to the throne of David. Luke, on the other hand, is recording actual biological descendants, all the way from Adam through Abraham to David, down through the Old Testament era until Jesus is born of Mary. And so those two distinct purposes of the different genealogies explains why different names are represented in each list. But there's one big challenge that some people have gotten hung up on between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's. And it concerns two verses, one in Matthew and one in Luke. Look at Matthew 1, verse 16 here, where Matthew says, this is going to get technical, and I hope you're a geek like me and you like this stuff, um, because I think it's fascinating. Matthew 1, verse 16, Matthew says, Jacob is the father of Joseph. And in the Greek, those are the actual words. Jacob is Joseph's dad. And Joseph is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Now, flip over to Luke chapter 1, real quick. Just for a second, keep your thumb in Matthew. Luke chapter 1, look at verse 23 of Luke 1, and notice what it says. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Not Jacob. Well, what's up with that? I mean, on the surface, reading your English Bible, it sure seems, doesn't it, like Matthew is saying something completely different than Luke. Matthew says Jacob is the father of Joseph. It looks like Luke is saying Joseph is the father of, or the son of somebody named Heli. Jacob and Heli both being descendants of David, both coming through different offspring of David, different lines of David. So which is it? Did Jesus come down from David through the line of Nathan or through the line of Solomon? How do we, how do we resolve this? Well, there's a, lot, there's a lot of scholars who say that you can't. And a lot of atheists, a lot of liberal Bible scholars who they deny God's word is God's word and they love to show and point at this as an example of, of a contradiction in God's word and say, see, you can't trust God's word. It's not inerrant. And let me, just, let me just tell you that people who believe that way when they come to verses like this, they believed that before they ever got to the verse. They, they come into passages of Scripture like this already believing, having a preconception already fixed in their mind that the Word of God is full of errors. And they're wrong. And we can show you why this morning. There's two all-important keys that get overlooked by those scholars because they're not good enough scholars to understand that help us understand how Matthew 1.16 and Luke 1.23 go together. The first, Luke 3.23, you're in the wrong chapter even. I'm sorry. Man. You're trying to, poor Sherry's over there digging and digging. It's Luke 3.23, not Luke 1.23. Um, so look at, look at Luke 3.23. The first key in understanding how to resolve this, in Luke 3.23 is the little phrase in that verse, as was supposed, that's in parentheses there. Let me read it again. Read along with me if you're finally there in the right place. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, 
And here's the second key where it says, the son of Heli. And here's the thing, in the Greek text, the word son doesn't appear there. It's not, it's not in there in, in Greek. Luke didn't actually write the word son at the end of verse 23. It doesn't actually say what the English translation seems to indicate, that Joseph was the son of Heli. Right, we're going to come back to that one. First, we're going to look at this little phrase, as was supposed. What does that mean? Why did Luke put that in there? Well, what he means is this. If you were somebody living in first century Israel, and you were walking down the street, and you ran into Joseph and Mary and their son, Jesus, what would you assume? What would you suppose? Very naturally, you would suppose that Jesus was the biological child of Joseph and Mary, right? But you would be wrong, right? Why? Because Jesus was the biological son of Mary, but he was not the biological child of Joseph, was he? He was the adopted child of Joseph. Because Jesus had no human father. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus was conceived, even as the angel explained to Joseph before it all happened, by the Holy Spirit in the womb of his mother Mary. So that's the first thing to remember. Hang on to that thought, obviously, in your mind. Joseph is not Jesus' biological dad. So hang on to that. Move on to the second key, which, like I said, is this, that the word son doesn't appear in between Joseph and Heli in Luke 3, verse 23. Let me read it. Let me, let me translate literally what the Greek says. It's, it's wooden and it's clunky this way. But it's literally what it says. It says this, Jesus, when he had begun his ministry, was about 30 years old, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, was of Heli. Well, that doesn't sound like good grammar, does it? Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, was of Heli. If you take everything else out of that verse, from when Jesus began his ministry and how old he was, and that he's the supposed son of Joseph, grammatically, what Luke is actually saying is that Jesus was of Heli. That's all, not Joseph, Jesus was of Eli. Here's what that means. What Luke is telling us in Luke 3.23 is that Jesus, who was supposed by men to be the biological son of Joseph, who outwardly appeared to be the biological son of Joseph, really wasn't the biological son of Joseph, but actually descended from Heli. See? Again, one more time. Luke is saying that even though men suppose Jesus to be biologically related to Joseph, he's not, but biologically his, his nearest male relative, according to this lineage, is somebody named Heli. Now we understand that Jesus isn't and cannot be the biological son of Joseph, right? He was born of a virgin. So why would Luke be saying that biologically he's descended from somebody named Heli? It's simple. It's because Eli is not the father of Joseph. Luke doesn't actually use those words in the Greek. And Matthew, 
who does use those kinds of words in the Greek, very clearly says that Jacob is the father of Joseph. So what Luke is saying, by stating that Jesus is descended biologically from Heli, is that Heli is the father of Mary, not Joseph. Now see, it was very, very rare in ancient times to include a woman's name in a genealogy at all. And it was unheard of to trace someone's biological descent through their mother in a written genealogy. It was always through the male. And so if the father wasn't known, then instead of listing the mother, the, the, the standard custom was to list the maternal grandfather, which is what Luke's doing. The goal of Luke's genealogy, in difference to Matthew's, is to trace the literal biological ancestors of Jesus all the way back to Adam. And following the custom, the mother's names weren't listed. And since Luke knew that Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological dad, because he knew Jesus didn't have a biological dad, when Luke constructs this chronology, he lists the next closest male biological relative, who is Heli, who is Mary's father. And so in other words... The differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy are are, are because of two things. First, again, Matthew's interested in tracing Jesus' royal lineage, and Luke is interested in tracing the biological family, earthly family, human line. Second, Matthew is tracing Jesus' royal lineage through Joseph. He's showing how you can work all the way back through Joseph to get to David. Luke wants to show that even through the biological lineage, you can do the same thing. You can work all the way back through Mary and get to David. So see, tracing Jesus' lineage in that way, Luke and Matthew together show us how utterly unique Jesus is. The virgin-born Son of God is among men. Listen to, this is, this is Thomas Boston, the old Puritan. Listen to him explain it. I think this is awesome. He says, Christ was an extraordinary person from another Adam. Therefore, it was necessary that he should be produced in a brand new way. The first Adam was produced neither of man nor woman, right? God simply breathed the breath of life into the dust of the ground. And then Eve came, and she was taken from his side of a man but without a woman. All of the others that were born into this world came from a man and a woman, a third way. And Boston says, a fourth way remained, to be born of a woman without a man. And so Christ was born. I think that's great. This whole record, the of the ancestry and the birth of Jesus, I think what Matthew and Luke are saying, it's just got the fingerprints of God all over it. It's got the marks of divine sovereign orchestration all over it. And if you turn back to Matthew now, you can see more of them. You notice, look at verses 11 and 12 of Matthew's genealogy, Matthew chapter 1. <laughs> Notice in there, there's a name, Jeconiah. Jeconiah. 
Now, Matthew, again, is tracing the royal lineage of Jesus. He's proving that Jesus is not just a biological descendant of David, but that he is the heir to the throne of David. He has a legal right to assume the throne of David. And that makes it very, very interesting that he lists the name of Jeconiah in this royal lineage. And here's why. Because in the Old Testament, where we learn who Jeconiah is, in the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 22, God pronounces a curse on this specific person, Jeconiah, and the curse very specifically forbids any of Jeconiah's descendants from ruling on the throne of David. It's in Jeremiah 22, verse 30. Thus says the Lord, Write this man, Jeconiah, down as childless. Record him as a man who shall not succeed in his days, because none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. That's what God said. According to the word of the Lord, which is infallible, immutable, unchangeable, even though from the standpoint of human descendancy, a a descendant of Jeconiah could be the king because he was a physical descendant of David. From God's standpoint, no descendant of Jeconiah could ever sit on the throne. And according to Matthew, Jesus is a descendant of Jeconiah. How can he sit on the throne? How can he be king? How can he be Messiah? Because, see, in all of God's perfect providence and wisdom, he reveals to us in Luke's gospel, right? That Jesus, who's not a biological descendant of Joseph, is a biological descendant of Mary, who is the daughter of Heli, who is also a descendant of David, but not through Jeconiah. Isn't it great? Through Mary, the line has no curse on it, traced through David's son Nathan, which eventually would produce... Heli and his daughter Mary and her son Jesus. And Jesus didn't have any children of his own. And so he exhausts literally the line of Nathan. Meaning this, that he is literally the only possible descendant of David through this line who can be the Messiah and rule from the throne of David. Because the line that did have a curse on it, traced through David's son Solomon, produced Joseph, that line is now exhausted also. Because all of Joseph's other children have an older adopted brother, Jesus, who legally, because he's adopted, is the royal heir. Literally, Jesus is the only descendant of David through any line that could be the Messiah. Donald Barnhouse sums it all up like this better than I could. When God the Holy Spirit begat the Lord Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary without any use of any human father, the child that was born was the seed of David according to the flesh through Mary's line. And when Joseph married Mary and took her unborn child under his protecting care, giving him the title that had come down to him through his ancestor Solomon, the Lord Jesus became the royal Messiah the uncursed Messiah, the true Messiah, the only possible Messiah. The lines are all exhausted. Any other man that ever comes into this world 
professing to fulfill the conditions of messiahship will be a liar and a tool of the devil. Because Jesus is the only King of kings, the only Lord of lords, the only seed of Abraham, the only true heir of David's throne, the only possible Messiah, the only Savior of the world. And that is the message that Matthew is proclaiming and Luke too, loud and clear from their genealogies, and it's magnificent. It's a great affirmation of the divine purposes of God being sovereignly accomplished in minute detail, in precisely the right way, so that Jesus could be born and be king. It's a great testimony to God's all-powerful and all-wise rule and reign over all of the affairs of this universe. Look at verse 17 of Matthew chapter 1. Look at the symmetry of God's sovereign ways. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. And from David to the the deportation in Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. By itself, that's awesome. Just that trifold symmetry. Matthew doesn't explain exactly though what he has in mind by by highlighting it in this way and referring to these these groups of 14 but there's a way to understand it because of the reality of the religious system and the ascendancy of priesthoods in the old testament listen this is from a christian jewish scholar named israel finkelstein he says the number 14 is not an accident It's not an accident. It is a specific ecclesiastical reference to the Old Testament priesthood. And it corresponds to the number of high priests that existed between Aaron, the first high priest, and the establishment of Solomon's temple, as well as the number of high priests that existed from the establishment of the temple in Chel. Jadua, who was the last high priest mentioned in Scripture. So in the Old Testament, God orchestrated it that way also. There was a specific number of high priests in those specific eras of Israel's history, and Matthew is showing that Jesus conforms to that priestly pattern. And that's something that all the Jewish rabbis and Pharisees and Sadducees and scholars, that's, they understood this. Fourteen high priests between Aaron and the temple. Fourteen high priests from the temple until Jadua, who was the last priest to be named in the Old Testament. They knew this. And they knew it wasn't an accident. They knew God had put history together this way. So for them, the number 14 was massively significant, and Matthew knew that, and that's why he highlights this same number in the generations of Jesus, because Jesus is the last high priest, isn't he? The one who made the final sacrifice after which no other sacrifice could be or should be or ever needed to be made in order to reconcile people to God and to deal with sin and to appease the wrath of God against unrighteousness. Jesus' sacrifice put an end to all sacrifice. Jesus was the one who said, look, if you tear down this temple, referring to his own body, I will raise it up after three days. 
His death, His resurrection, His vanquishing of death by His one-time sacrifice. And Matthew's showing Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God has ever done all throughout history in the Old Testament to bring atonement and everlasting salvation to His people in a way nobody else ever possibly could and in, in a way that nobody could ever possibly undo And there's even more here. There's, there's some more really important things to see in this genealogy. Look at verse 1, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew declares that Jesus is both the son of David and the son of Abraham. Why? Well, it's obvious because he is. But one commentator says that this phrase, Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham, resonates with rich and abundant meaning and nuance, which is very true. Matthew says he was named Jesus because that name means to save, and he came to save his people from our sins. He's the Christ. He's that, that word means he's the anointed one of God. The Messiah, the great king prophesied and hoped for, longed for, for centuries throughout the Old Testament, who would deliver his people and establish them forever as an everlasting kingdom of peace and righteousness. So he's the son of David. He is this king. David was Israel's best and most successful and most God-fearing king. And David is the one to whom God made this promise that there would always be a descendant of David who would be God's chosen king to rule and reign over his people for all of eternity. And Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. The King who came and is the King of all kings and who now that He has been raised from the dead can never die again and there can be no more kings after Him. He's the eternal King. He's the one who's infinitely more righteous and eternally more successful than David was. And He rose up from... David's fallen line and rules and saves and protects his people forever. So that's why he's the son of David. And he's the son of Abraham, obviously, because David's related to Abraham, right? But see, Matthew wants to highlight both because, because everything that Jesus does and fulfills goes beyond even the great promises that, that, that God made to David. It goes all the way back to the great promise that God made to Abraham. And you remember that promise in the Old Testament book of Genesis. God called Abraham out of his homeland and said, Go and forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house and go to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name so great that you will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And then you remember that in Genesis 15, God told Abraham to do something that people did traditionally in that time when they made promises to one another, when they made oaths and covenants with one another. They would take some birds and some animals and they would sacrifice them and then cut them in half and put the, put the carcasses apart from each other, kind of like a, a pathway. And then the two people making the promise together would walk between the severed halves of those animals together. And the symbolism was, we're, we're making promises together, and if either one of us breaks the promises, may it be done to us 
what was done to those animals. And they would make that passage together, making a mutual commitment together of faithfulness to the, to the terms of the oath and the promises. It was a way of sealing and binding the covenant. But when God made this kind of a promise and a covenant with Abraham, He did it very differently. What He did was He made Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And while Abraham slept passively, unable to participate, God made this covenant with him and God passed between the pieces of the animals alone, unilaterally, but by himself. Meaning, see, that the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham didn't depend on anything that Abraham would or wouldn't do. It was an unconditional covenant as with respect to Abraham. It would depend entirely and solely on God's faithfulness. On what God would do. And look what God did to fulfill this promise to bring through Abraham a blessing that would bless all of the nations of the world. Look what God did to orchestrate all of history in order to bring this one person down through all of the lines who would be born of a virgin in a manger in Bethlehem and would bless the whole world with saving grace. And so, this is what Matthew's telling us. Jesus, the virgin-born Messiah, the Son of God Himself, God incarnate in human flesh, has come to unilaterally do and fulfill everything that God had promised. And through Jesus and through Him alone, all of the nations are blessed. All of that is what Matthew is saying. And every Jewish person reading this in in ancient days would understand. And there's another thing, another facet of this genealogy to focus our attention on today. And that's this. Matthew's genealogy does break form, and it's already pricked your brain. I know it has because I said when we were talking about Luke's that it was very unusual to include women's names. Matthew does it a bunch. Women normally would not have been included in ancient genealogies, but Matthew includes five women. And of those five, only two were actually Jewish. You see the name Tamar in there? Tamar was a Canaanite woman, a Gentile woman. And what she's known for is seducing Judah in Genesis chapter 38 by posing herself as a prostitute. It's not a very noble thing. Rahab was a Gentile woman and she actually was a prostitute. Ruth, you know Ruth, she was a Moabite woman, a Gentile. But she grew up to be a part of this genealogy, even though in her upbringing in Moab, she was a worshiper of false false gods. Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, is the one who committed adultery with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. What's the point of including the names of these women who in their lives were sinful and idolatrous in the genealogy of Jesus' birth. 
The point is simply this. Each one of these women is an object lesson to teach us about the mysterious workings of divine mercy and grace. God's only begotten Son came through a lineage that didn't depend on human traditions and human values. And that's why Matthew has no qualms whatsoever about including the names of these women in his record of Jesus' ancestry. Normally you wouldn't do that. And normally if there was a man's name and he was known to be a, a sinful person or somebody who did ignoble things, you would just edit his name out. And Matthew doesn't do that. Now historically... Human cultures and societies have not valued women as much as men. And what I'm saying to you is that the point, Matthew's point and God's point is that God values them equally, without distinction. Male and female, He created them both in His image. One is not more priceless and precious and valuable than the other. Matthew knows that now as a believer, as a Christian whose worldview has been reshaped by God's Word away from cultural norms. And so he's happy to include the names of of women that God worked through to bring about His purposes. Because Matthew knows that the eternal purposes of God do not stand and do not fall on human convention or tradition or gender. Or anything that we can do or can't do, we can frail as we are as human beings. God is able to accomplish everything that He plans and purposes and promises, and He's able to do it in spite of us. Isn't that what we saw last week when we meditated on the little town of Bethlehem into which Jesus was born? Too little to be even named among the clans of Judah. Because that's how God does things. And the sinfulness of the people who are represented in this genealogy proves that. God works His sovereign purposes through the things that this world considers to be weak and foolish. Again, Paul says exactly that in 1 Corinthians, doesn't he? God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that when the purposes of God are accomplished and fulfilled, all of the credit goes to God. And all of us who are flawed say, praise be to His name. No one can say, well, look what I did. I was awesome and so God used me. Or look at what any human did. Now it's always, look at what God did. That's why God called Abraham. He was also a Gentile, right? A pagan out of the unbelieving, idolatrous land of Ur of the Chaldeans. God called him to establish his everlasting covenant through this man. God handpicked David. He was the youngest. He was the little shepherd boy. He was the last person anybody expected God to choose to be king over his people. And the one through whom the Messiah would one day come in spite of the fact that, yes, Bathsheba sinned after David seduced her and sinned with her. In spite of all of David's human weaknesses and shortcomings and failures, God worked through him. It's the same reason why the servant of the Lord, Jesus himself, would be a suffering servant. 
Right? The Old Testament says he, he grew up like a young plant, a tender shoot, a root out of dry ground without any form or majesty that we should look upon him, any, any beauty that we should desire him. No one could ever point to anything of this earth, any power of this world, any human wisdom, any human might, anything we might normally associate with greatness. Now we, We're just left pointing to God on high. Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected, the one that everybody said is worthless, is the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes how God did it. And so this is all why, when at long last the Messiah finally came, He came in the way that the Gospels describe and record as this fragile, helpless human infant, born of a virgin, All glory be to the Holy Spirit. Born in the little town of Bethlehem. Born in a cattle manger. This is how God works. This is how He builds His kingdom. Praise be to God as a person who's sinful myself. He works through you. He works through me. He works through all who are saved by His grace and by the power of His Son, Jesus Christ. We are the earthenware vessels into which the treasures of Christ and His mercy and His gospel grace have been poured. And all the glory goes to God. And so Matthew records, look at verse 18 of chapter 1. Matthew records, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is so beautiful. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Think about that. Mary and Joseph, it says, were betrothed. And while they were betrothed, before they were married, she was found to be pregnant. Betrothal in those days was similar to engagement in our days, except in those days betrothal was much more of a binding commitment, even legally so. You're making a a legal commitment and promising to marry this woman. And you can be held to that legally in those days. So being betrothed meant that even though you weren't actually married yet, that's what you were doing. You were promising to be in in a legally binding way. And so it was obviously inappropriate before you were married, while you were betrothed, to be having relations together before the wedding took place. And even more so, if it was discovered that one or the other in the betrothed Commitment had been having relations with someone else? That was very scandalous. And you could be treated and you could be punished legally and shamed publicly as an adulterer. And see, this is what Joseph was worried about. He knew Mary hadn't gotten pregnant by him because he hadn't been with her that way. And so his natural human conclusion was she must have been with some other man. 
But notice, he's not worried about Joseph. He's worried about her. He thought the commitment's been broken. And what most men from that time period would have done would have been to expose her and shame her and leave her in her shame. Almost ensuring that nobody would want to marry her. Well, Joseph wasn't like most men. And so even before he came to understand the truth about, the miraculous truth about how she had become pregnant, Joseph looked on her with mercy. Joseph looked on her with grace and compassion and love. He wasn't vindictive. He wasn't full of self-righteousness. He wasn't driven by, by a selfish sense of his own rights or carried away by a need for, for her to be punished. Why? Because he loved her. He loved her. And he didn't want to shame her. So he purposed to break off this betrothal quietly so that no one else would know. Joseph was a good guy. He was an honorable man. He was a, a selfless, loving, compassionate man. And so he didn't just fly off into this indignant rage. Verse 20, he considered all of this very, very carefully. And while he's laying up, probably into the long hours of the night, thinking about this, probably weeping about this, what do I do? How do I care for Mary? What's the right thing here? He falls into a sleep, and the angel of the Lord comes upon him in a dream and reveals to him the wonder of God's purposes and ways. Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Because the baby that's been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She didn't cheat on you. It's from the Holy Spirit and she will bear a son who you're going to name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And your grace will become a microcosm of God's great grace for all mankind. This child was of the Holy Spirit, was descended of Abraham, was descended of David, was the fulfillment of all of the purposes and promises of God, was the Messiah, was the, the salvation. Literally, his name means from the old Hebrew name Yeshua, because he and he only would save his people from their sins. And notice how Joseph just humbly gets, gets out of the way. Yesterday, my dad said, why don't you preach about Joseph and what happened after? And I said, what happened after? And he said, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, so tell us. And I go, how am I supposed to know? The Bible doesn't say. I don't preach about what the Bible doesn't say. The point is, Joseph got out of the way, and now it's all about Jesus. I'm going to preach about him. Joseph gets out of the way of the awesome purposes of God that are being unveiled. You see, Joseph could have said, Okay, God, you had this child conceived by the Holy Spirit and, and she's going to give birth to this child that's not my child. You do what you do, but I'm out. Joseph could have said, This is not what I signed up for. This is not what I expected. This was not my plan. Count me out. No. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife. But he knew her not. 
And you know that biblical word know when it's in relationship to human beings is a, is a relational word. And it's used of intimate love between a man and a wife. He didn't sleep with her until after she had given birth to this son whose name he called Jesus. It's remarkable. Joseph went ahead and married Mary anyways, but knew her not intimately. He waited to be with his wife. He put his own desires aside completely until all of the purposes of God were accomplished. And so, with all of that sitting on our souls, this is the same kind of thing that the Lord needs to be doing in our hearts and in our lives as we contemplate the great wonder of the birth of the Son of God, who is God the Son, and the salvation that He came to give, the life that He came to give by laying His own life down in order to lavish the love of God, the unconditional, undeserved, self-abasing, self-sacrificing, servant-like love of God on us. The prayer today is that all of that will crucify, as it did in Joseph, any fleshly impulse that remains in us to live for us, to live for our desires, to say, well, what about my rights? Well, what about what I need? What about the dreams and aspirations and hopes and agendas and goals and priorities that I've set for my life? To lay all of that aside, to make all of that submissive to the plans and to the purposes of the Most High Sovereign God who works in ways you cannot possibly imagine. To do things that are beyond what you could ever ask or think to ask for. It was His power that saved us, not ours. It was His mercy. It was His grace. It was His promises made long ago to a guy named Abraham who lived in Ur fulfilled in this miraculous way that brought these unfathomable purposes of redemption to fulfillment through this sovereignly orchestrated lineage that led to His birth. It had nothing to do with anything we deserved, anything we earned, anything that we were the slightest bit worthy of, anything that we could have done the slightest thing to accomplish. And so, knowing God's great sovereignty brought all of this about the way that it did, knowing that it's such an outpouring of His mercy and love as He has worked meticulously in this world. Pray with me this morning that by the power of God's grace, He will be exalted in us as we lower ourselves, as we humble ourselves as we devote ourselves to serving Him and loving and self-sacrificing in love for one another. Let's pray together today. Our God and our Father, forgive me for not being able to even speak articulately of the majesty and the wonder of Your ways and do justice to all that You have revealed in Your Word. But Father, we are in awe of the God who you are. And we are in awe of the love with which you have loved us and the way in which you have worked, the myriad ways in which you have worked to bring about the salvation of your people, including us, through this one man 
when it could not possibly have ever been any other man, through this one way, such that when we look and understand, we have to point and say, only God could have done it this way. And so, Father, we thank You, and we praise You, and we love You, and we ask for the grace and the power of Your Holy Spirit to humble us and to fill us with wonder and awe, to fill us with love and gratitude, and to teach us to love as we have been loved and to serve as we have been served. And so, Father, receive our praise, receive the outpouring of grateful hearts for the sake of Your glory today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. On page 12 of your bulletins, you'll find the words to Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Let's stand together as the musicians lead us in song.